0: I wanted to be extremely careful to not be biased in trying to find machine learning solutions. I wanted to find the right solutions for the right problem. You know, that problem I had in that previous startup where we went with a machine learning solution and realized that machine learning was not the, the solution there. I didn't want to reproduce that mistake there.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Damien Bevinist. He is a data scientist and software engineer. Previously, he was a machine learning tech leader at Meta. He has worked for almost 10 years in different machine learning roles in different industries, such as Aztec, market research, e-commerce, and healthcare. He has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University, and now working towards co-founding his own startup in the employee engagement space. Today, we'll talk about his career journey, how he solved challenging problems, and his advice for new data scientists and engineers. If you have been enjoying the show, subscribe to the channel and give me a five-star review. Welcome to the show, Damien. Thank you. So how did you get into machine learning?
0: So I was doing a, a PhD in physics, and I was very interested by mathematical modeling. At some point during my PhD, I realized that I didn't want to go to academia. I didn't want to be a professor. It was a big struggle for me uh, to to make that realization. So I had to understand what I wanted to do after that. At the time, uh, so I knew nothing apart from physics. And at the time I was thinking that the physicists, they were becoming quants on Wall Street. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: I thought like, I'm going to become a quant. And what I did at the time, I created or I revived uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, Economics and Finance Club. And I invited people, and I thought it was a better way to learn than to read books. I was reading books also, but I was inviting people that were quants and that were giving them, you know, giving us um, their experience. You know, it was like some kind of presentation. So, and uh, through that, I started uh, to build a team of uh, quantitative traders, you know, so we were like people from different departments, and we wanted to basically train to do quantitative trading. So we were reading papers, and we were trying to implement algorithms, you know, like getting data from Bloomberg terminal, you know, it was fun. And i remember reading that paper from forgot that guy he's a he's a professor in 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 n y u and uh he was talking about statistical arbitrage mm. and uh, in that paper he was using uh p c a uh, a simple application of p c a uh, and i was reading about p c a some something actually that is not too far from what we learn in physics um, and uh, I started to discover more and more about that field of machine learning. I think it was around 2008 at the time, or something like that. The paper is 2008, and um, I started to uh, read more about machine learning. At the time, I was uh, I found that uh, the notes of Andrew Ng online. Yeah. For his um, course, uh, CS229, uh, I, be, I believe, in Stanford.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: At, at the time, Coursera did not exist. Uh, so I was watching his lectures on YouTube. And I started to learn machine learning this way. So at the beginning, it was really, you know, an uh, uh, intellectual curiosity. You now, what is that thing I never heard about and uh, everybody's talking about? Yeah. And... But still, I was I was continuing the idea to become a quant. I think at the time, machine learning was not that uh, fashionable in the on you know in the quant trading world. But um, I got engaged at that uh, you know at some point during my PhD,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: my wife, I mean now my wife, moved yeah. to do a postdoc in Berkeley, in Berkeley, California. Yeah. Uh, very far from Wall Street. And I told her, you know, like, go there, I follow you. But I was preparing to go on Wall Street. Um, you know, I spent, you know, a big amount of time at my PhD to prepare on, to go on Wall Street. And mm-hmm. suddenly I had to prepare to go on the Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was not prepared, you know, like, I had, you know, I didn't know... I was not a great software engineer
2: mm-hmm. uh
0: I knew machine learning from reading books and 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 notes you know online and so I didn't have a great academic training and I started to apply to jobs in 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 California and in California, the only jobs available that were suiting me were more like software engineering machine learning data scientist yeah. Um, so it's basically how I came to be into data science, kind of destiny chose for me.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, that's yeah. the first job. Uh, you know, like like I was, I was I applied to consulting, I applied to quant trading jobs, I applied to software engineering, I applied to data scientist jobs, and that's data science that chose me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, it was actually a very good fit because so I did a PhD in between the physics department and the mathematics department, and um, I was so my day-to-day was basically finding new equations and testing them using numerical experiments. So I was using a, a lot of synthetic data to do a lot of Data analytics, data analysis, um, which is pretty close to what typical data scientists does. So I was not using the same programming languages. I was not using the same frameworks to do, mm-hmm. you know, the, the job. But uh, it was, um, let's say, um, a very obvious transition for me. Yeah, that's that's how I, I, I went into machine learning. Originally.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, some very interesting part I noticed was basically from the quantitative trading, you were using a project that you're very interested in and then uh, use that to learn, um, you know, engineering and machine learning. And it also, it seems like you discovered Andrew Ng's course before he launched his uh, yeah. Coursera courses. Yeah. And uh, lastly, Uh, You need to thank your wife to bring you to Silicon Valley into the uh, tech jobs.
0: Sure, sure, sure.
1: I know you previously had a lot of uh, experiences. We'll get to that, talk more about your uh, journey. And for your most recent experience at Meta, can you share how did you get into uh, Meta? And then what was some projects you were working on?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, Meta was my my last job. Um, uh, It was quite a journey to arrive in in Meta. So during uh, a lot of my career, uh, I was resenting the fact that uh, I was not able to apply to the big things. And one, one reason is that I went into Berkeley. I got my first job. And then my wife got a professor position in Long Beach, California. Mm. Uh, so in LA. In LA, uh it's the amount of fank jobs are more limited. Yeah. Um so you know, sometime I applied to just some jobs, you know, in, in LA, but uh I it was it was uh, the the amount of opportunities were much more limited than than in the Silicon Valley, uh, and even if you get a job uh, uh, in in LA, you know I was I was living in Long Beach. Uh, it's always like three hours driving uh, to get to to work. So yeah. during COVID, I understood, I realized that uh, those big companies they were going to have to move uh, remote and i anticipated the fact that they were going to have to um uh hire remote and I, it was starting to be potentially an opportunity for me to apply to those companies so i remember it was like august 2020 i believe like you know well during covid i was um not fully happy in my current job at the time. I can I can come back to that on, on why there you know later. But and I started to prepare um, interviews. So I knew that I was going to interview you know maybe a year from now from that time, and I was just going to take my time to prepare interviews, uh, waiting for those big thing companies to uh, become remote. Um, So I started to read that uh, very famous book on doing the exercise in the book. I was not finding it very useful for me to prepare. And I started to do more lead code questions. I basically, you know, uh, started to enjoy having a routine around doing lead code. Mm -hmm. And I was really, you know, I started by... You know, it was it was a it was it, I was not really preparing for interviews. I was just you know setting my mind, uh, getting getting ready for to to be knowledgeable on the subject. So I was doing LeetCode, you know, questions, and I was having fun doing that. You know, I was uh, yeah really enjoying you know every day. Oh, I do one question, and uh, you know that that was that was a routine. And and I remember in September twenty twenty. Um, or maybe a bit later, a recruiter from Facebook contacted me. And she told me, yeah, so now we're going remote, like I expected. <laughs> um, so uh, would you be interested to interview? The position was for a Tech Lead, which, which I had no idea what it was at mm. the time. I was uh, my, my title at the time was Director of Machine Learning uh, in a in a startup that got acquired by a bigger company. So, you know, in those small companies, a big title like that is not as important as, as in a company like like Meta. But still, you know, having that title, I was a bit uh, reluctant to go back to be an IC mm.
2: um,
0: and not really understanding what was a uh, tech lead. I was like, okay, is that is that the right job for me? Is that, isn't there like a manager position for me? And the, the, the lady described the position as being some somebody that uh, managed people on on big projects, which was very close to what I was doing in my my job at the time. So I started to prepare more seriously for interviews. Uh, I really wanted to be ready. I I didn't want to to waste that opportunity. So um, uh, the the nice thing about Meta or, or I think uh, Google or Amazon, I think is the same it's extremely clear what you need to prepare for to interview. They tell you exactly what you need to, to learn. They tell you exactly, uh, they give you the time you need. It's, I felt it to be very similar to an exam. You have, you know, like maybe like if you think about the SAT or if you think about like a college exam, you know, you have a curriculum, you just learn that curriculum and we just uh, question you on that curriculum. Yeah, um, And the question is that, the, I mean, the, the point is that the people, you know, in college that get uh, 4.0 um, uh, GPA are the people mm-hmm. that prepared the most or were the most uh, efficient at preparing for those exams. So that's kind of the idea here. Some kind of a exam. Uh, that is very similar across tech companies. It's pretty much the same system for Google or, I believe, Amazon.
2: Yeah.
0: So you prepare for one, you're ready for the others. It's kind of, it's kind of nice. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I prepared like crazy. Uh, lead code, system designs, machine learning system designs. That was basically the sense of, of what the interview was about. And I got in. Uh At the time, I was very excited. Uh, I was so excited about the opportunity to to learn from a company that has such a mature uh, machine learning uh, practice. Yeah, you know, like uh, Facebook and Google, they are publishing papers that are of academic level. Meaning that you know they are advancing the science of machine learning they are advancing the 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 technology you know it's it's really it's really humbling to be to be able to work in such an environment so i I went into the ads core m l organization, so that's the organization it's like three hundred engineers uh and that the organization that is in charge of all the machine learning for ads. ad ad placements in, in you know like Facebook or Instagram or the different ways they can be placed. Um, and that was that was very exciting because if there's a place, if there's a domain where machine learning is really valuable from a monetary standpoint, it's uh, ad tech. Um, I think it's a proven field where really you are uh, using machine learning, and it's bringing cash. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not always the case in 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 companies. There's yeah. a lot of cases where machine learning is used, but not that useful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Ads was was a place where really you could quantify your your work. Or the su- success of your work, yeah, in in dollar amount,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and it's kind of what I liked about quantitative trading at the time: the fact mm-hmm. that the your the amount of success you may have is is translated into dollar amount. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so it's a big or- organization. Um, I think it's it's very different from any other places. I would guess, in the world, uh, because you, you rarely see so many engineers working just on machine learning, just for a specific application in mm-hmm. one company. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: so everybody is very segmented. Everybody has a very different domain of application. Personally, I was in charge of the automation of model optimization at scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what that means is that we have... We had about 500 machine learning models uh, that were in charge of all those ad uh, personalization. And I was in charge of um, what we call model optimization, which you can basically describe as being the the piece of cross-validating hyperparameters. You know, like how do you uh, at scale automate just that piece of automating, I mean, uh, uh, cross-validating your hyperparameters. Yeah. In the case of um, uh, ads here, we were using neural networks. So beyond just, you know, typical hyperparameters like L2 uh, uh, regularization parameter or dropout percentage, you know, you have all the architecture. You know, you when you think about uh, hyperparameters in, in in a neural network, you need to think about all those continuous hyper I mean hyperparameters, but you need to sort of think about the architecture. How do you optimize the architecture such that um, you have the best model you you, you can have, mm-hmm. right? And how do you automate that and how do you make it work across all the different model model paradigm that were existing for, for ads? When when you think about ads, you know, you think about uh, personalization this way, uh it's it's uh basically matching an ad to a person, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very similar to it's 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 basically enters the realm of uh rec engine. So the type of machine learning algorithm were rec engines. And uh you have many different type of model paradigm in uh in that type of um uh type of algorithms and how do you make sure that you have a system that can uh optimize across all the possible model paradigms mm-hmm. so that was that was a very interesting subject i really liked uh, the idea of automation you know like the idea of auto ml as being something important for me for for many years i spent my whole career to automate my work you know to make sure that uh you know when you start data science you you spend a lot of time writing code and like to do that specific uh feature transformation and uh, at the end of your career you know you you want to make sure that everything you do is done at the click of a button so i spent a lot of years making sure that my work was you know already done for me uh, and i could just click a button i would have a an automation of machine learning development so uh, the the idea to be able to do that in a company like facebook was was a great opportunity for me um, yeah. so i really liked that idea of working on automl i really liked that idea of working on, on ads which was a very mature um uh, problem solved very well by machine learning uh, and uh, it's the type of scales that you see nowhere in the world. You know, like mm-hmm. the, ty- the amount of data you get in, in such a company is amazing. And the scale of the models, the scales of the data you need to deal with, and even the scale of the amount of models you need to deal with is not something that is common. So that was, that was very interesting to see how you actually uh, solve for that problem. So I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad I got that that learning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So when you talk about uh, auto ML, um, in your definition, what is the the auto ML you use?
0: What, what do you what do you mean the auto I use?
1: Yeah. So I think when we think about some current auto ML solutions, a lot of them are. Black box. They Mm. just try different algorithm and which one works well. Sometimes it's good to find a baseline, but sometimes have challenges when it go into production. And uh, um, so I assume the autoML you mentioned is different from this, but more like you have your own pipeline from. Yeah. maybe some data checking to hyperparameter tuning to deployment um so what is the automation you you mentioned in your uh, workflow
0: yeah it's it quite different from what you typically refer as yeah. being auto ml uh if I think about a company like DataRobot, or I think about driverless AI from H2O, mm-hmm. uh, this type of, of solutions, what they are trying to do is basically take a whole bunch of algorithms. You throw the data into the, the algorithms and you just see who wins, you know, what algorithm yeah. wins. It's, it's a bit different here. It's because uh, the paradigm is already known. Uh, we don't need to build a solution that will adapt to every use case. We don't need to. We know that we're going to use neural network. We know that we're going to have to predict on, um, uh, you know, for ads uh, to infer for ads, uh, ad ranking. We know that uh, the type of model paradigm is is uh, rec engines. So you 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 can really limit the space in which you're searching. You don't need to search the model type. You don't need to search anymore. Am I going to uh, assess a random forest versus a neural network? No, there's not. There's nothing like that. So you need to, you know, you the 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 space of the search space is is much more limited. But that means that because it's much more limited, uh, and uh, it's the core, basically, you know, those machine learning algorithms are the core revenue of meta, you have much more opportunities to actually refine and to try to find new techniques, to find new ways to to model optimize or to maybe uh, joint optimize features with, uh, with uh, hyperparameters or, you know, like... What is the best way to um, the best way to uh, optimize uh, the right features? How do mm. you optimize on resources because it's a lot of resources? So if you want to scale beyond what is already there, you need to make sure that you can use smaller models for the same level of performance. So the type of automation here is somewhat different. Uh, also, you want the automation around serving the model. You want to be yeah. able to do uh, to have an automation around uh, A-B testing, A-B testing a model.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and you want to have an automation around uh, deploying that model when the model has proven to work in an online experiment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there was a big debate uh, around, uh, among engineers on, on how do you actually uh, implement AutoML. Uh, do you make it a pure black box? Such that uh you really move the complexity to the engineering, you know you really need to take into account everything to make sure that you always have the most optimal model, or do you leave more flexibility to around the automation such that developers can utilize that ot- automation to develop new techniques? yeah, um, it's kind of interesting to have. Um, some automation that is done, but uh, this way you can really uh, take those automated pieces and to see if you can move it in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, you know o- um, automation is similar to abstraction when you know you have languages programming languages that give you a fit function, and you take a, an algorithm and you just throw some data into it and you just fit. Uh, you have that abstraction. You just abstract the complexity of machine learning training by just have the fit function that handle everything for you. Be- behind the scenes, it's you know under the hood. It's really complex algorithm that is running and you, you, it's, it's automated in a sense. Yeah. Um, so automation, machine learning automation, you know, if you think about uh, data robot, you have a fit function that is going to search across a different search space. Uh, additionally, to the parameter space, you know, like which is what an algorithm is trying to optimize on.
2: Mm-hmm. If
0: you think about a logistic regression, the, the machine learning algorithm, you know, the, the automation is behind is 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 about optimizing those parameters. Yeah. Uh, and if you think about um, AutoML, it's about uh, auto, uh, optimizing those hyperparameters additionally, and uh, optimizing around the model space beyond, you know, be, you have the the parameter space, the hyperparameter space, and you have the model space, and, you know, you just want, you just have some some system that is trying to abstract beyond just the parameter space.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, when it comes to uh, what we were doing is that how much do you abstract? How much do you abstract away? How much complexity do you abstract away in such a way that you still provide uh, enough flexibility to uh, implement novel ideas?
1: Yeah. So eventually you kind of need to find a balance between the easy, uh, the automation and uh, the flexibility. So maybe... Um, you still have automation, but like you mentioned, you have those building blocks, uh, so you can change a certain module when it's needed, but when you want to combine those, um, it's like Legos. You can kind of build some new tools based on the previous modules. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's a it's, it's way to see it. Uh, and it's it's the trend for any technologies, any mm-hmm. software technology, if you think about it. Um, if If you see, you know, like, Back in the 50s, coding a website was a huge pain, you know, a huge difficulty.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, with the level of abstraction we have, one person can deploy a huge website at scale around the world at the click of a button. The type of abstraction we have now for the different software technologies have really helped us um, uh, you know, go over some, some complexities.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, previously, you also mentioned uh, model paradigm. What do you mean by model paradigm?
0: So let me, and I'm not sure I can develop too much, um, but when it comes to REC engines, um, rec engine, when I think about REC engines, uh, I think about um, that uh, competition, Netflix competition that happened Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me if I'm wrong. I think it was 2010. Um, so 2010, there was this competition around recommending um, uh, uh, movies to users. And uh, if I remember correctly, the the first, the winner of the competition was a huge ensemble of
2: different machine yeah.
0: learning models that was really not practical to use in production. Right but the second uh the second uh in that competition was that latent matrix factorization algorithm that is a simple linear model that was able to recommend uh a, a movie to a user and it was a, it was very simple and it was somewhat I I don't want to State too much to claim too much mm-hmm. because somebody is going to tell me no. It's somebody in the '80s that did that thing, but uh, yeah. I believe at the time it was pretty uh, novel way to to do to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. So, what is uh, latent matrix factorization? It's basically uh, two matrices that uh, you take a product of. And you uh, get an inference, you get a prediction, by doing that, uh, by, but see, by, by seeing what is the result of a product, of a dot product of two matrices. Those two matrices, they share a lot of similarities to uh, what we call an embedding in a neural network. An embedding in a neural network is basically a matrix. And uh, instead of doing uh, a dot product, uh, you 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 can uh, have more nonlinear interaction created between those two embeddings, and this is the birth of this is you know the basis for foundations for the the more actual uh, rec engines right now. Mm-hmm. Basically, have an embedding that represent users, and you have an embedding that represent items, like for example, ads or movies or, or maybe Google queries. or, oh, I mean, um, web page. You know, you know, when you think about Google, Google search. You just try to predict if a specific user is going to like uh, to like a specific item. So, when it comes to model paradigms, there are many different ways to uh, build uh, nonlinear interactions between those two embeddings,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: the different model paradigms come from uh, those different approaches. Uh, you will find the mix of expert type uh, paradigm. You will find the two tower or multi tower type paradigm right now, like uh, the, the actual different paradigms are not are not in my mind, but you have different type of ways you could build interactions, build non mm-hmm. linearity, non linearities between the input and the output. And yeah. that's what, you know, lead to those different paradigms,
1: mm-hmm.
0: different type yeah. of architecture, basically.
1: Okay. Got it. Thanks for sharing that. And so you were at Meta for um, a year. What was it like to um, work there? What was the culture like? So
0: I can can tell you right away that um, I truly hated working at Meta. Uh, (laughs) And I want to be careful when I say that because that was my experience. Yeah. Uh, I know that many other people don't have that experience. Uh, It's a 70,000 uh people company Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um it's you know you have a huge array of different feeling about uh, culture and the work Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so i can only talk about my experience yeah um so first of all um i was remote where my team was not and i think that created some kind of uh, you know i was i was i felt pretty isolated uh, i didn't have that connection with my team in such a way that they had it uh prior to me being hired or even after that led to you know some isolation
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, they there is a culture around uh productivity um so basically there is a system to uh, assess people based on their productivity.
2: Mm. And
0: you need to quantify your productivity. Mm. And it's a very stressful place. I mean, it's very stressful. It creates a very stressful environment. Yeah. The fact that in the the Ads Core org is the number one revenue generator of of Meta, there was a lot of um pressure on us. But that's that's okay. You know, I don't mind the pressure, you know, like before I was working in startups
2: mm-hmm.
0: and working in startups, sorry, the fact that you need to survive is a pressure I actually appreciate. You know, like mm. I, I enjoy that pressure. But here the pressure is around gamification, the gamification of your promotion system. You know, like mm. And I, I I hated that. I hated the fact that it, create, it, it, it led to my work becoming very meaningless. You know, mm-hmm. like the passion that I always had around my work and around machine learning was not because I wanted to optimize some productivity metrics, yeah. but uh, because I really enjoyed what I was doing. Right. Um, and... Um, So that that was this very productivity metric optimization oriented culture. Mm. Um, So it was uh, everybody had to optimize their own productivity metrics. So it's a very individual uh, system. It's not at the team level. It's not at the org level. Well, you know, there's some metrics, you know, people are looking at at different uh scales, but for different people you know they have to optimize their own metrics mm. and it generates a very individualistic culture you know a culture where everybody is thinking for himself that was that was tough for me because I was coming from a place before where I felt my team was my family. You know like I really really liked my team previously my previous mm. company. And suddenly <laughs> I, I was in a team where um, social aspect you know the 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 team spirit was very weak
1: mm-hmm. and it was
0: it was tough for me especially uh being remote yeah um when you're remote, I feel that the team spirit has to be you know has to be given more uh accent you know more importance but here it was it was very limited. I felt very lonely for a long time. I felt I was doing things not because it was it was the right thing for the company, but because I had to optimize my own productivity metrics to um to get to my next promotion i just just did not enjoy that at all um additionally to that, I was a manager prior to my job at Meta, yeah, and the amount of management. That I was getting there was very limited in comparison. I really felt I was stepping back in my career. Yeah. You know, like um, it's something that I, I've, it seems to happen a bit in in um, in the, those fangs. If you're not coming from a fang, you know, if you come from mm-hmm. Google, you know, people we we respect your background. If you go to Meta, but if you're not coming from a big fang, um, you, you will you tend to be somewhat down level uh, when you arrive yeah and it's what happened to me. I felt like I was back a few years in my career, you know, and that was very a, a big struggle for me. like what am I doing here? Mm. so um, I realized that that was not the right place for me.
1: yeah, thanks for sharing that. So basically, you're not just evaluated by your project, the value you generated for the company you're also evaluated by the productivity, like how you spend your time, how you, you deliver work.
0: No, no, actually, I would say that meta is pretty, mm, let's say, you know, like I I I I somewhat agree, but I could disagree in some aspects. What meta is uh, heavy on in terms of optimization is impact. You can put the effort you want. If you don't have any impact, you're useless you know, that's kind of the philosophy. And I I don't, I don't fully disagree there, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's important to make sure that what you do is useful, you know, is impactful, has an impact on the business. You just don't do things for, because it felt good to do them. You know, Mm -hmm. there is a real need for that thing you're working on. So especially in ads where, you know, you need to make sure that the revenue is up every, every semester.
2: Really?
0: Um, you, you know, you need to be productive impact wise.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe
0: if you're in a research team, uh, it's the concept of impact may be uh, assessed differently,
2: mm-hmm.
0: quantified differently. But for us, impact means increasing revenue. Mm. That was, that was a direct uh, There was a direct connection between uh, what we were doing and revenue. So our productivity was measured by revenue, or by proxy, by proxy, or revenue. So, got it. For example, one proxy we were using, I mean, is is uh, offline experiments uh, Mm. results. It happens that um, conceptually you could understand the relationship between. How good is your model measured in some uh, uh, machine learning performance metrics? And you could understand how good it is, and you could understand the relationship to that uh, goodness, I mean, to that uh, performance, uh, to how you could improve the revenue.
2: Mm.
0: Actually, the the correlation between offline and online was actually very weak, but uh, at the very least, uh, offline performance metrics were used as a way to uh, showcase impact. Um, so if you invented a new algorithm, or if you implemented a new technique, um, and that technique leads to uh, increase in uh, certain amount, I mean, in certain, certain metric, uh, you generated impact. Yeah. But if you spend the whole semester trying to implement that new technique that led to no improvement, you have no impact.
1: Mm. Thanks for sharing that. And also you mentioned there are certain metrics um, that tells you how to get to the next level. And uh, so sometimes I think people can, like you mentioned, uh, focus on how to meet those metrics um, instead of focusing on delivering value of their project or long-term um. Value So that can be also um, frustrating. So do you feel this type of valuation focusing on short-term gain and it's hard to think um, in a kind of long-term fashion?
0: That's interesting because I can tell you that there was a conundrum. You know, that was a somewhat, uh, you know, 300 engineers, you know, that was somewhat, uh, some some engineers were okay with that. Some engineers were not,
1: you know, mm-hmm. depending
0: on on. on what they like to work on. You know, I would say that 75% of the people had a PhD. So there was people that really found passion, you know, fun really in doing research, doing doing being being scientist, uh and trying to discover new ideas. Uh those type of people are people that really learn the culture of long-term project, you know. Yeah. So ads is a place where you need to have short-term impact, uh, mm. but it's also a place, because it's so mature, where you need to be innovative. You you, you, you cannot, you know, to actually provide uh, improvement over time, you cannot uh, uh, stay in the state that you're currently in. You really need to find new techniques, new ways to find more impact. Um, There was this balance between short-term project and long-term projects. Uh, Mm -hmm. Long-term projects were thought about like that new technique that uh, will take a long time to validate, a long time to implement, long time to automate, and the short term would be something that is uh, maybe a low lower hanging fruit but still need to be implemented uh and some people would have more excitement around long term projects some people would have more excitement about short term projects um, mm. but depending on the stock market you know on the on the stock uh valuation of facebook uh the they were more, more or less pressure on long or short term projects,
1: yeah. Because the model you implement your experiment with has direct impact on the revenue and has direct impact on, yeah. you know, the company's stock. So I can see why uh, the productivity is so closely measured, and uh, I can see there's also a lot of uh, pressure around yeah, that. Um, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so um, I know there's a lot of, uh, there's some, this type of evalu- evaluation you don't particularly enjoy. And what are something you uh, something you learned from your experience at Meta or there's something you, you liked?
0: Yeah, um, I think they, there's a few things. Uh, so first of all, uh, being exposed to that scale is a real learning experience. You know, mm-hmm. like, how do you deal with that scale? How do you deal with being able to show an ad for, uh, I'm not too sure how, how many many daily users we have, but uh, there's 3 billion users that receive ads on Facebook how do you deal with that scale? The the, the understanding... So you see, I was exposed to the theory of how do you deal with that scale Mm -hmm. by studying things like system design. Uh, How do you actually scale to those type of um, uh, numbers? Uh, You you can learn about it theoretically, you know, like meaning Mm -hmm. like how trying to predict, trying to... Quantify how many servers you will need uh, to predict. Uh, if, to 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 quantify if you will need uh, uh, how how fast things need to be. You know, like you can you can you can somewhat put everything on paper. But how is it really implemented? And um, also something that is interesting to me is that Facebook is certainly, definitively, you know, the second. Uh, uh, biggest ad um, provider in the world after Google, I believe. If you're in the leading market, how how badly it is it is also, you know, like uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, like we always think about um, how great those companies are. I I, I knew we experience that it's never perfect in anywhere. Uh, yeah. So I was wondering like. Considering how good that company is, how good that company is able to, to build a technological product, um how how bad are they allowing things to go when it comes to you know bugs, uh how how uh, slow some things may be, some 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 DevOps tool may be, or you know, like I was interested to see like to what level of imperfection you can go when it comes to implementing such a system, to still be, you know, in the leading leading the market in the domain. That, that was somewhat mm-hmm. interesting to me. So being able to see that scale, that was that's an experience that happened.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
0: I think nowhere else apart from you know the the five other big tech companies, uh, so that's that's a real, you know, it's a it's an exp- it's an experience that you you cannot get by working in a startup or something. Like yeah.
1: That.
0: So, so this is great. There's also something I've learned about myself. I think that was very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Meta for me is a very important experience for me to understand who I am, you know, in a sense. I've worked in startups, small companies, I work in bigger companies. Uh, I worked in always very immature on the machine learning side, companies. I mean, Meta was definitely uh, the type of, the level of maturity I've, I've worked I had in, in Meta was nowhere nowhere close to what I've experienced before. Realizing that Working in a company that is, for many people, the dream company, and that I don't like it, uh, was was actually a realization for me
2: mm-hmm.
0: that I need I needed to do something else. You know, like yeah. I needed to, I needed to find uh, my own a, a different path. You know, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: like I said, you know, I always resented the fact that I could not work in such a company. Yeah, And I always thought that, so I, I never was like extremely, you know, happy in my career, you know, like I always was disappointed in some, some job or another, um, uh, some job, good job, some less good jobs, you know, and uh, I felt like this is it, you know, this is uh, when, when I get in, when I got into Facebook, I thought like, this is the company I'm going to stay in until I retire. Mm-hmm. You know, I will, I will make a lot of money and I will be, that would be, that would be it. Yeah. Um, and when I realized that even in that company, that is supposed to be the dream company for everybody, I'm not mm-hmm. happy. Uh, what am I supposed to do in my life? You know, like I was somewhat lost. I was like, what, 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 what is there? What, what remains for me to be done to try to potentially potentially be be happier in my career, so it's where I felt that um maybe the only thing that I didn't try was to create my own company mm-hmm. um and that was a that was a big um uh, revelation for me to go in Facebook mm-hmm. because really yeah. before going to Facebook, I felt okay my job title was director of machine learning. The next job should be maybe VP in machine learning. The next job would be, I don't know, uh, <laughs>
1: you
0: know, CTO or whatever. Yeah. And I would go from shiny title to shiny titles, you know, right. and uh, I would increase my salary. Um, I was thinking that I would go to Facebook and I would just, you know, be safe there, you know, mm. not, not too much risk of layoff there. Um, and I would just have, you know, comfortable uh, uh, income that would allow me to to be happy later. Mm-hmm. And then when I realized that uh, that's not for me, uh, I thought like, okay, let's change completely what I thought I was going to do, and let's try to build to build my own, you know, my own company.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we are going to talk more about what your current company um, is working on. I think a lot of audience probably are are curious. So we're gonna talk about that later. And now let's go back in time in your career. Um, And uh, thanks for being very um, transparent about your experience at Meta. Um, So previously um, you worked in a startup, you worked on a lot of uh, different projects. What is one project that uh, has shaped your career?
0: So there are different projects that shaped my career. I would say um, there's different transitions I experienced in my career.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think I would I'm thinking about two, you know, one, two or three projects here. The first one that I'm thinking about, really, it's not really the project itself, but more the job. I was two years in in my career. I had like two previous jobs before. It was when I was at Blue Steam. So, blue team, I think, went bankrupt right now. It was an e-commerce. Yeah, that was interesting because we, they, it was a, a a company in, um, forgot which state. Uh, I need, I need, I need to to check again, but um, they created an antenna uh, in in LA for the data science team so it yeah. was a, a new endeavor they wanted to create like a new uh a new data science practice for the company basically uh trying to optimize everything using machine learning you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's something that uh, is commonly done in in especially in e-commerce uh how do you optimize everything you know with the data science team and um That was the first time for me that I had, uh, as a manager, somebody that was an experienced data scientist. Previously, um, in my previous jobs, uh, my managers were people that were not, you know, that that maybe they thought they were strong data science, but they were not. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, But here, it was somebody that has really that experience training machine learning models. Putting them in production. He had a PhD in stats, so he was pretty educated on, you know, like the underlying uh, intuition around the data and mm. and maybe um, maybe mathematics of some some of the, some algorithms. So it it was it was a very good experience for me. Uh, so having that mentor. Uh, and we were a team of data scientists. Like everybody had a PhD. Um, everybody pretty strong data scientist. So we could really learn from each other. Yeah. Um, it was it was a great, great experience to be able to work in that environment. To basically mm-hmm. have an actual data science mentor. not Not to be told what to do, but to understand what are some... Constraints. Maybe we should follow best practices. We should follow to uh, to just work, you know, around data science. So I remember we we worked on a project for was for um, marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. So that specific company was sending catalogs to people. You know those annoying catalogs you receive in your mail. Yeah, uh, so many. <laughs> that was that was you know we were we were we were part of the problem. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you're not
1: just pushing the ads on my Facebook, Instagram account. You're also sending the catalog in the mail. Exactly. Mails.
0: Exactly. You're
1: in all the ads space.
0: <laughs> so we were, we were sending, you know, we were basically, um, we wanted to optimize marketing campaigns, mm. uh, and so we wanted to personalize who you send a catalog to, right, uh, based on some data we would have about the different users. What was interesting about that that uh, project for me was that uh, it was, I think, the first project we worked on when I was at at Bruce team. We set up the work in such a way that we all worked on it. Like we were um, at the time, four data scientists plus ma- ma- the manager, uh, and we basically. All set up the, the process in such a way that we were kind of competing against each other. Mm-hmm. The, the, the The concept of competition was not like uh, um, you know established. You know, it was just like uh, it, it was just induced by the way we we, we worked uh, together. But basically, uh, we tried all to solve the problem in our own ways, and uh, we could quickly see how much. Performance somebody else could get, you know. Uh, alongside that quick feedback from you do something, you, you do somebody else do something, and you see who kind of outperforms the other, we we had the manager that was really imposing a, a rigid framework around the way we were developing models. Meaning that give um data to a data scientist. Uh, a junior data scientist, that, that junior data scientist could spend two years trying to develop the perfect model
1: mm-hmm. and
0: never never deploy anything. Uh, here, the, the, the game was uh, timeboxed. Uh, we timeboxed everything. And uh, there was timelines that we had to follow to make sure that we were providing value at some point quickly to our users may have been suboptimal, but the idea was that we wanted to we want to make sure that uh we quickly get something in production first of all to uh test the production environment the production systems
2: mm-hmm. and
0: to uh generate value to our users as fast yeah. as possible that was that was very interesting um uh, experience for me because I think that was the experience, the job experience, or the project experience that made me a data scientist. You know, like the data scientists that care about the user.
2: Mm.
0: The data scientists that care about timelines. I was not anymore that PhD student that had years to get the project going. No, I was, I was somebody that had to produce something quickly uh, for customers. Also it's where I started to understand what works and what don't work uh mm-hmm. in, when you try to uh be quick in uh, developing a machine learning model i think it was at the time where so you know you you, you take very very you know I would not call, at the time i was not a junior data scientist so i was pretty educated on the on the on the concepts but uh i was not maybe as good to understand uh what t- what are the best algorithms to quickly try to get the the value quickly
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and I remember like I remember you know starting that project trying throwing everything at as the data every feature transformation every algorithm possible. I mean it's endless, right? You can spend years trying to find the best things to try on the data, yeah, and you know it's it's where you realize you know having that feedback, having other people trying something else and realizing how useless what you're doing is is actually very interesting, you know when mm. I was trying every feature transformation, and on the other side, that guy uh, it was two thousand sixteen, I think at the time. And XGBoost was pretty, pretty, pretty new in the community. I mean, it's a 2013 algorithm, 14 algorithm, mm-hmm. so it was not that fashionable at the time. Yeah. And we, we, you know, I, I was seeing, you know, my friend trying like H2O algorithms or XGBoost algorithms, and 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 realizing that all the feature transformation I was doing were meaningless compared to the amount of performance improvement that my colleagues could get with using, you know, some algorithms that were just uh, more adapted to the problems we were solving. Um, so that was that was where I realized that um, a, I understood a bit better, maybe in an initial. Uh, uh iteration of a of a data science project what you should and should not do um hmm. theres there's no need initially in the first iteration you know data science is iterative so a project is something that you 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 iterate on and 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 uh you 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 push to to uh, a model to productions and next time you will imp- try to improve on it but when you're in the first iteration, you should not try to throw everything at it. You should try to use what is proven to be good enough
2: mm-hmm. to
0: outperform what is already in place. Uh, at the time, we had marketing uh, analysts that, were, that had their own ways to, to optimize uh, uh, marketing campaigns. Yeah. And the goal was not to get the best model, but to... Uh, beat them,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and to beat them, uh, we didn't need to spend years to do that. We we could just uh, throw at the data, you know, a couple of you know pr- well-proven algorithms, and we understood that um, that would be good enough to get a first itera- iteration of a of a of a machine learning model for for that specific problem um and that was that was very educational to me i i think i understood quick i understood better what you should focus on at first and what you should focus on later down the line Um, yeah that was interesting for me Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so that, that was a very educative project and work experience working with so knowledgeable people. I think I really recommend to quickly get a job, you know, uh, when you're a junior data scientist, to quickly get a job with people that are strong data scientists and that have an environment where they can really impose best practices. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Uh, It's not always the case. Uh, If you don't have good data engineering or good um, data quality already there, it's going to be hard to be mentored correctly by a data scientist uh, because you will spend your time just looking at data pipeline and data quality. But if you don't need to take care of that, uh, you can refocus really on machine learning development uh, and really learn the best practices there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, and uh, I can resonate with uh, what you suggested about how do you what what how do you set your goals for your model uh mm-hmm. if you have a research mindset, although research is uh, important, but in a kind of business environment, how can you quickly provide the value? I think one thing is always important when we develop a machine learning model is to know your baseline so in your case, your baseline is the market marketing analyst's model, so mm-hmm. comparing to the baseline. Um, how does your model work, right? Maybe I can just improve 10% comparing to the baseline. Or maybe you develop a model that has 95% accuracy, but the human labeling or whatever baseline is already pretty high. It's 99% at that time. Maybe you need to think about, oh, is this really worth it to invest in uh, machine learning? So I think knowing the baseline and setting a goal, uh, comparing to the baseline is a way uh, for us to, you know, set a milestone, create a meaningful yeah. impact instead of trapped into this kind of endless optimization uh, competition.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you, you should not go to, into a machine learning project without having a baseline. Mm. I mean, there's two reasons for that. First is like, what business value do you provide is there like a business value provided by your machine learning algorithms you know like if you don't have a baseline you you don't understand what you you know what potential improvement you you may be providing yeah. uh mm-hmm. is is that useful are you useful and additionally to that is that um being able to quantify it's it's not it's important to understand that, I think, for many data scientists. Like, if you're not working at Meta, uh, you're a data scientist, or if you're not working in a FANG, if you're a data scientist, you, your job is not safe, you know. Uh, and you need to understand how much value you are providing to the company, therefore, uh, validate that you are worth your salary. Uh, if you can prove that, uh, I think it's going to be uh, helpful for you to keep your job. If you cannot prove that, I mean, you need to accept you're not that useful. If you cost more than you 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 generate as a revenue, um, something something wrong there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by measuring your impact, you you have to gather that information of. What is the current baseline? Or Mm -hmm. if there's no um, baseline, just understand what is the current process? What's the current... Um, procedure for example how much time people are spending on this manual process and what is the Mm. frustration those if you don't have the data point collect those anecdotes the story and then when you launch the project if you're not at meta maybe as a data scientist sometimes you don't know um, what is the change so you need to take your initiative to ask the product manager and engineers, um, to kind of follow up after one month, three months, what has changed. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, add it in your own documentation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, another point on that is that, um, that's why I think it's important for data scientists to not only focus on offline results, Mm
2: -hmm. but
0: on online results. So you, you have a business problems you're trying to solve. You're usually providing a machine learning solution that is trying to solve a proxy problem to the ar- actual original problem. You know, like um, uh, there might be different ways to solve for marketing campaigns. There might be different ways to solve for customer attrition or something like that, that than a machine learning solution. So you're providing a machine learning solution. That solution may not be optimal to the problem you actually try to solve. Um, so it's actually important to understand uh, how that solution is providing value quantified into a business metrics. It's important, you know, like a, in machine learning, we care about R square, we care about we care about AUC, uh, you know, cross entropy, and those kind of metrics they are not uh, meaningful business-wise. So a 10% improvement in some AUC may be completely meaningless uh, when it comes to the business metrics you're trying to Mm -hmm. optimize. So it's very important to go to look and get your hands dirty in trying to understand uh, how much of business metric you're actually improving. Yeah, that's why it's important to have you know to go beyond just machine learning development. Uh, you need to understand your your customers, your your users. You need to understand uh, production environment. You need to understand how much value you're providing to your users, and you need to really be curious about that to be a good data scientist.
2: I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you also mentioned you <clears throat> time box everything. Is it a way for you to uh, remind yourself to kind of focus on the goal, the customer, the product? Kind of. Um, I think, I think um, it's,
0: it's, a, it's about, it's about um, getting away from what is tempting to do in machine learning. Mm. Uh, it's tempting to try to optimize forever your models. But um, I think it's very important to come back to the bottom line. You know, what are you trying to solve and uh, who are you trying to solve that for? And, and you know, like take into account context, like, you know, if you work in a public company, uh, you have quarterly, I mean, you have uh, yearly reports, uh, you have quarterly reports. Uh, so you need to provide value uh, in a short term as as well as long term to validate your your own use, uh, you know, to to make sure that you prove you're useful. So -hmm. there's there's this kind of thing. You cannot be the type of person that is disconnected from the context, the context of customer, what you're trying to solve, and the context of your own job, uh, how it's perceived by leadership. So um, you need to deliver value quickly, Uh, first because of customers. And you need to deliver value quickly because you need to prove that you're actually useful to the company. And you need to work across teams. So when you're a data scientist, you work with product managers, you work with data engineers, you work with data analysts, you work with maybe backend engineers, frontend engineers. You need to uh, plan uh, when people will need to do something. So you cannot say, hey, let, let me come back in two months and I will tell you if I have a model or not. You need mm-hmm. to have some kind of planning for people to know what they will need to do. You know, a month from now. So if you're able to establish, um, you know, a goal, you establish priorities, you establish success metrics, you establish timeline, you establish milestones. It becomes much easier to um, include other people of you know from other teams in the project you're working on you're not working alone you're working in you know across teams across skill sets so you need to be able to really uh, find a way to communicate and collaborate with other people
2: Mm -hmm. and
0: so time boxing is a way to to somewhat achieve that, you know, like you have a plan, you have timelines, you have milestones. Within a month, I need to deliver a prototype. I need to deliver a POC model. That's it. I It's not two months because people a month from now are waiting for it. And people a month from now, maybe data engineers, will need to build some pipelines to based on the fact that that POC has been validated or not. And I cannot delay from... A month to two months because those engineers may have other things to do. So right. that's that's one thing. Second thing is that it's making sure that you get away from what is tempting to do in machine learning, and mm. to try to provide value to the users as fast as possible.
2: Yeah. As
0: so, as long as your model is not in production, n- no value is being generated. No impact is being generated. No users is happier. You know, mm. um, so. You need to, you know, if you have something that is slightly better that is already in place, uh, and it's generating value, you need to have that thing being productionized quickly, because uh, that value will only be, I mean, being 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 uh, seen or felt if the model is in production. Mm -hmm. So time boxing, you know, like like understanding what is machine learning development. You know, uh, this, when you come to machine learning development, you can maybe think about user interview, like like maybe user interview is talking with your product manager or with a, uh, talking with an internal team that you are trying to, to build a solution for. Um, then maybe there is like uh, trying to understand if uh, the data that, is, that exists uh, uh has any predictive power uh, that can be tested very quickly. You need to make an expert of uh, you, yourself. Make yourself an expert on on the data and the mechanisms that relate relate to that data and and the problem you're trying to solve. If you pretend solving a problem, you need to be an expert on that problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then you need you know you know there's like um, uh, Choosing your data, cross-validating your hyperparameters, training a model, all of that can be timed uh, and can be shortcut if you start to feel that it's going to take too long. There's productionization. You need to start productionization. You need to start building pipelines uh, before you have a final model because it's going to take time to build pipelines. If you know that your POC provided... You know your, your 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 proof of concept provided some value. You need to establish some data engineering pipeline to make sure that you can save your model. You need to make sure that uh, if you let's say build a machine learning service that is going to be called by a backend uh, uh, server, you need to build the the the, the systems in place. Um, that you know, like if. On the you know if you have a uh, uh, a model that has interact with a user uh, on the front end let's say and that is sitting in a service that is called by a back end you need to maybe build uh, in, on the front end some some interaction that will be able to feed on what the model is going to predict um, so there's all those things that need to be built. That is not only about your machine learning model development, and so yeah. you need to be able to somewhat uh plan uh and provide timelines to those people to for them to know that um, they can start to work on on what they have to work on and you're going to be ready by the time they are done so yeah. the, this, you know it's it's all about that it's um Machine yeah. learning. Machine learning is not a one-person
2: job.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's important that you mention you need to productionize the change or do some experiment quickly to see if you're adding value because mm-hmm. the the text or the test or validation data you get is still from, you know, the previous distribution. You don't know how the model would perform unless you put it in production exactly. and test it. Exactly. Yeah, so
0: you- your, your, your 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 ex your data your your da- the data you have for back validation uh, may not be um, the data you actually see in production. Uh, one more thing also about being fast is that data change. Yeah. You know, data change over time. So you know, like the distribution of the data may change or. Uh, you know, you or you can have some some concepts that change over time. You know, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: the, the the famous example is like what used to be a spam is not anymore uh, what we consider being a spam. So if you build a spam detector, you know, your what you were able to detect as being spam is not going to work later down the line. So the faster you can be, the faster you can adapt to changes.
2: Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, also quickly put your model in production, even if you just increase it by a few percentage, can bring your uh, business say your manager or director more confidence because Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, leaders they are not having they don't have a lot of trust in machine learning so you need to quickly prove the value to show them um, something so then they can continue invest in the project investing you especially like you mentioned in startups um, they will still hold their position
0: yeah yeah. yeah, 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 You need to. It's good to be able to prove that you're valuable over time, mm-hmm. and you can continuously be valuable. You know, at, yeah. the, the moment uh, as a data scientist, you're not able to bring an I- increment uh, in performance, you're out of the door. <laughs> so you you need to. It's good to to keep some some value under the hood for later down the line. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's important to do that. There's also something that is somewhat important. Um, if you start to try many things at once uh, and you, you, you deploy the, the latest version of your model, you don't really know what, what uh, among those things you tried, what really brought the most value. So it's quite interesting to be able to, be, to, to, to say, okay, I'm going to try that technique. I'm going to try that, that one feature transformation, and I'm going to test it in production. And that one feature transformation, you can directly associate that transformation to a specific uh, improvement in performance. And that um, is important because you will be able to tell, oh, that feature transformation is very important. But that, spe- that other one that I, tr- you know, that I could have tried in- throwing in the mix, it was not very valuable. And you can really quickly select away, filter away what, what is useful and what is not, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're able to do some uh, discriminative type experiment like that. You know, discriminate yeah. over some some one one specific transformation, one specific algorithm.
1: Yeah. So it's basically uh, like experimentation method. I think it's uh, useful for machine learning engineers to learn some um, kind of statistical method on experimentation design. Uh, A-B mm. testing is not just uh, you know, treatment and control. There's a lot of nuances there. You add more variables, it's very hard for you to uh, draw causal Inference on what has changed. If you have a treatment with three changes, the only conclusion you have is the three changes, the combination of whatever it happened, maybe given one hurting another or some combination you don't know, that's the only learning you have. You cannot learn uh, one specific change. So you need to um, design the experiment in a way to uh, think about okay, do I just want to Test this combination, so I can launch it, or do I want to test it so I can learn uh, what's happening there and yeah. also, if you work on a large team, your coworkers may testing something else in the pipeline, so you don't know like you mentioned exactly. machine learning is a teamwork you need to coordinate with them to talk to them, or maybe even product managers testing something on like a, a image a layout that could impact your model, so you need to know. Uh, the entire kind of uh, experimentation, timeline? Um, are there anything impacting you on the yeah. kind of the upstream, downstream? Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think at Meta, we were pretty good on that. Um fact that it was a very mature practice of machine learning, we could really have some strong, uh, good practices around A-B testing things. Um, because. You know, there's a there's that level of maturity. The, the 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 thing you can the only thing you can try remains very refined stuff. You know, are very re- things that really refine what is already there. It's hard yeah. to really completely change everything. Right. Um, and so you you kind of try that new thing and you A/B test against you know what is already there. You know, you have your challenger and you test against your your champion. And uh, I, thought, I thought it was um, it was, it was uh, well done because if you think about the scale at Meta and when you, you realize that you have, you know, so many models, just for ads, you have 500 models, right? Yeah. If you find a, a technique that maybe process your feature in a way uh, that is very valuable, maybe the feed team can use it. Maybe the other people in ads can use it, maybe in other, in other part of meta, you know people can use it. Yeah. So um, being able to quantify that a specific improvement, I mean a specific improvement is 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 led by a specific tech, new technique, um, is good to be able to propagate that uh, successful technique to other place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. thanks for sharing that. Um, and uh, what is the some challenging project? The most challenging projects you have worked on?
0: First of all, I always felt that my projects were always challenging. If I if they are not challenging, they are not fun, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, there was this one project, but uh, I think defined me a bit. Uh, defined where I am a bit better way, I mean, the way I am now. When I was, so prior to, to, to Meta, I was at Sense360, which was a, a small startup that was selling data products on market research. At the time, we were trying to raise a Series B uh, and uh, we were selling data products, but the feeling from investors were that we didn't have a secret source. I mean, we kind of had a secret source, but they felt that they were missing some level of complexity in the way the data was provided that was easily, uh, so because of of that lack of complexity, it was easy to reproduce uh, what we had as a company. So the next person that decided to do the same thing, the same product, could easily do it because we didn't have like a secret IP, secret source. And so there's a feeling uh, always, especially around ser- between Series A and Series B, uh, that machine learning is going to provide that level of IP, that, provide that level of, of uh, proprietary algorithm that will be good enough to make it difficult to, to, be, to copy uh, what you provide as a service. So um, we wanted to build a system a platform that we're going to provide uh, more relevant information, the relevant information to the people that were looking at the data. So instead of showing every piece of data that could be available, we were just, you know, at the top showing the relevant data, the data that is relevant for that person at that point in time to make uh, uh, efficient decisions, so in terms of market research, the efficient decisions are how do you lead your maybe marketing campaigns, what type of group of people you may want to target, you mm-hmm. know, like maybe what region you want to target, etc. cetera. So at the time, the idea was that machine learning was going to be the way to provide the relevant information. It was somewhat novel. I mean, it was somewhat taking it to the next step for me because I was a manager at the time and I was managing people that were very strong data analysts, like people that could write amazing SQL queries, but not strong software engineers, not strong data engineers. Those were the people that had to build that product, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's it. You know, you're, you're a startup. You don't have more budget. You know, you don't. You cannot hire more people. You have a very limited amount of of resource. So here's what you have to build: what we want, and it's changing in the sense because, definitely, uh, that team was not the right team to build that tool. In Meta, it would have been completely different. But in a startup where this is a team that is in place. This Is what needs to be built. This is how it has to be done. Yeah, so that was a, taking it a step beyond for me because not only there was a machine learning piece, but there was um, the whole data infrastructure that had to be built. I was not taking care of the front end, but we were we had to really build that whole system that was providing the relevant information so. Basically, take the data that is already in place, massage it, and put it back into the system in a, in a format that is usable to be shown as being relevant. The machine learning piece at the time was uh, explanatory machine learning. So basically, I mean, it was just concept-wise. It was what we were trying to solve. The problem was that we had some time series one time series, time series was sales uh, numbers.
2: Mm-hmm. We had
0: sales numbers of different companies, and uh, we had um, market re- research metrics like that highlight customer behaviors, like for example, how many people bought uh, things in for that brand in 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 credit card versus cash. Or what was the food traffic in that specific uh, shop of, uh, that is uh, maybe a Mcdonalds or maybe it's Burger King so we had to underst- you know we had all those market research metrics like but, uh, where we could understand the behaviors of, of users and the idea is that uh, how do you use those market uh, uh, research metrics to explain revenue? So basically, it's like, how do you, ex- you, you match revenue? Uh, how, how, how do you match those customer behaviors to revenue? Because revenue is a bottom line for any company. So it's the only it's the, the thing that you care the most. So if I give you some food traffic metrics, uh, how much should I care about it when it comes to my bottom line? Like, mm-hmm. does that influence, you know, is that change in food traffic influence my revenue? That's that's what matters. So we use machine learning to basically understand the relationship between those uh, market research metrics and the bottom line uh, revenue.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: basically, machine, machine learning was just a way to learn the functional relationship between some time series and another,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: which is what machine learning is good at doing. Like supervised learning is... Functional approximation, you know the definition of supervised learning is functional approximation. How do you take a set of inputs you have you, you can predict an output, and what is the functional relationship between the input and the output? It was not even for inference. we were not predicting anything. Uh, we were just trying to understand the functional mm. relationship
1: yeah.
0: it was assuming that the functional relationship was not known yeah, which we realized later it was. <laughs> Um so that made machine learning at at some point useless. Uh but originally we started with the idea that we had that machine learning core that were learning the relationship between a set of time series and uh, output time series. Mm-hmm. And um we had to build the whole um data infrastructure around that. So we had airflow pipeline that was connecting to Redshift uh, database and we we had uh, all that pipeline that was really built just to feed that machine learning model and the challenge were really about getting everybody productive on that code base. If yeah. you think about people that are strong in SQL, it's not clear that they are going to be strong at being uh productive on. Mm-hmm a Python code base at the time where you had like airflow pipeline and it was, um, a good software piece of code. It was an interesting challenge to train people to make sure that they were efficient on, on that, on that code base.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think for me, it was interesting to as a challenge to coordinate with product manager, uh other engineers that were building the uh, a back-end server and making sure that whatever we're building was uh good uh aligned you know with what they were building everything was optimal in some way so there was this good cross team work uh challenge that was very interesting and at the same time, making sure as a manager, I was a manager that uh, the work is well shared across the different members in the team.
2: Mm-hmm. Th-
0: that was that was a very exciting uh, project for 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 me. Um, yeah, because it was truly beyond machine learning. Machine learning was just a piece of software uh, in uh, you know in a bigger piece of software, and we had to take care of that bigger piece of software. Bigger piece of software also. It was interesting because. You really get a sense of what what the user needs when you really think about everything beyond machine learning.
2: Mm. If you
0: think about the engineering around your machine learning models, when you're trying to solve a user problem, you you really think about other things that's like just how performant is your model. And that, that, that was very rich for me. Like think about building something for the users. It happens that machine learning was a part of it. It could have been that machine learning was not there. Building something for users. So it defines me as a project because I realized that, I mean, I, I love machine learning, but to build something for users, machine learning does not need to be there. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. I can enjoy building something for users even if machine learning is not there. And I think it's yeah. an important growth because if you're a machine learning person, if you're a junior data scientist, you develop models. If mm-hmm. you're a senior data scientist, you need to manage cross-team things, you know, with uh, data engineers of other, other other teams. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're a manager and you start to manage data scientists, data engineers, you know, you manage other type of skills. You need to, to build things beyond, you need to understand things beyond machine learning. And you need to understand that you're going to, be, to, to have to build things just beyond machine learning. And yeah. so it's an important growth to go through to make sure that you can get to the next step of managing projects that may or may not uh, involve machine learning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some unexpected or counterintuitive things you learned from this project?
0: Well, the biggest unexpected thing was that I remember being at the core of that project because I was a machine learning guy. Mm
2: -hmm. I
0: was a machine learning, the guy that has the expertise in machine learning.
2: Yeah.
0: And it was thought to be a machine learning solution. And, you know, it was a way to be able to say to people, yeah, we have a machine learning algorithm that does that. You know, every startup is trying to get that that one thing, that one line. Yeah, we have machine learning that does that thing. You know they could argue to investors that they had machine learning that was great for them and then you know over time we 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 realized that if we were looking at data if we were looking at the concepts behind what were meaning what was the what was the market research metrics meant, we could actually build an- analytical relationship between those mm-hmm. variables and revenue, meaning that we could actually write a close-form relationship between those inputs and outputs without having the need for machine learning to learn it, because there was already, you know, you could actually deduce it from the meaning of what those variables are about. And for some reason, so the the funny thing is that because I was not as strong of a data analyst than, than the members in my team, I did not build that expertise on the mechanisms behind the data as much as some of my coworkers, And I was not able to actually visualize that there was a relationship that existed. And for some reason, the people in my team took at least a year to realize that the relationship was there, and at some point, one one of my coworkers, one of the people in my team, was went come to, came to see me and say, "You know that there's a relationship there," you know, like and wrote down the equations, like realizing that machine learning was completely useless. You know that whole mm-hmm. project that was uh, starting to be, you know, as a as a machine learning project ended up to be a completely non-machine learning project yeah that was an interesting realization we had. I think it underlined something that i I hold dear as a principle is that if you can solve a problem without machine learning, you should do that. you know mm-hmm. you should only use machine learning if you're trying to solve a problem that is meant to be solved by machine learning so here we try to invent a solution you know, but uh, we realized that that the solution was actually better without any machine learning
1: yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so based on your almost ten years of experience in machine learning and as a you know engineer, what are some best practices in machine learning that you can share
0: there, there is like a couple of things that I can try to focus on. the so first of all is something uh, that I've been talking about, is it is to, to try to understand that you're solving a problem for people
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and to really get to the point where you provide a solution, you provide value. You're not solving an abstract academic problem. You're solving a problem to generate revenue or to make uh, users more happy, happier. So you need to, get to a point where you provide that value as fast as possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Really something that I really advise is to, to first understand that machine learning projects are very different from most software projects in a sense that when you build machine learning software, that software deteriorates because the data can change over time, the concepts can change over time, and you cannot... Uh, build a, a machine learning solution and let it you know leave it there as yeah. as something that will will remain high quality all the time
2: mm-hmm.
0: so you always need to think that machine learning projects are iterative you always need to have somebody on top of it
2: yeah
0: as as such it's a very different you know problem than like a front end front end engineering where mm-hmm. you build a front end that front end is there you know you're not you're not Changing it, you know, it's not, it's not failing over time. You need to think about machine learning project as being iterative, and mm. as such, you need to think uh, about trying to go fast to uh, get uh, feedback uh, from your models in production. You need to understand that whatever you do in offline experiments may not translate to your online experiments.
1: So that's exactly. the one
0: thing. You need to be mm-hmm. you need to be to have that understanding and you need mm-hmm. to plan over time that you need to go back to that project. And you cannot let it go once you're done developing your first model. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Second thing that I think come to mind is something that I've I was guilty of um and that you know I got beaten by is um when I started to be a data scientist, I was uh training models. I mean I started in R, so I was training models in R in R Studio. Yeah. And, and then yeah. And then I moved to Jupyter notebooks. Uh mm-hmm. so really, you know, like uh for me, uh, Jupyter Notebooks were the environment that was somewhat uh, providing me the similar value that I was getting with RStudio. Kind of, you know, if you, could, you could argue that you have better ideas to, to mimic RStudio, like uh spider maybe. But mm. um, I really liked uh, moving to Jupyter Notebook as, as a way to, to do some some quick experiments. Mm-hmm. So i think it's tempting if you have a such a such an easy uh environment ide to develop code it's tempting to if you don't think about production if you yeah. completely uh disconnect yourself from hey you're building a software and you need to uh push that software into production it's easy to do everything into a notebook you know if you for example uh go to kaggle you will see you know, Jupyter notebook, uh, Notebooks, right? You will see like mm-hmm. people uh, taking you through their own experiments uh, into a Jupyter Notebook. And if you actually take classes online, they will take you through a Jupyter Notebook. I taught data science in, uh, at, uh, at the university and I was taking people through a notebook. You know, it's a very simple way to showcase how things are, if you do something to the data, it's a very easy way to showcase what happened to the data. Mm-hmm. So it's tempting to actually train your models into your notebook. And it's tempting to have that messy code all over your, your notebook. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to manage your notebook code base in a way that you can have something that is reproducible.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, it's actually very hard to have something that is Production quality in a notebook. Yeah, uh, and I remember doing that, like developing. Actually, I remember like developing RStudio. Studio. Uh, and Studio you can you can run line by lines if you want. You know, you can yeah. highlight your, your 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 lines and just just run those lines. So you have mm-hmm. a, you have a similar flow than in Jupyter notebook. And also, your data is in memory, meaning that uh, you do something, the you know your 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 data is kept in memory. That means that if you do something else, depending on what is in memory, you may or may not have the same behavior, uh, depending mm. on what you've done before. So I remember like writing some code in our studio. At some point, I had a very good model, very high-performing model, very high AUC or whatever. And came the time to port that, that code to a production code base. So I was copy pasting my code from studio to whatever better code base, you know, the production code base would, would be. And I realized that it was super tough to keep the integrity of the data transformation by porting a code base from one place to another mm-hmm. in one format to another. Yeah. So the the big uh, learning that I got from that is that whatever code you're writing uh, in development has to be your production code. So um, what I do now is that when I write development code, when I train my final model, that code is a code that goes into production. I don't touch it. I don't modify it. I don't port it from one place to another. Mm. It's already, I develop in a way that when I uh, train a model, the model that is trained is going to be picked up in production by the same code base. And so when, for example, I validate the model in development, it's going to be using the same functions for predictions, for example. So it's going to take the data from the same place And it's going to really inject the data to the model in the same way, in such a way that in production, there's no surprises. Mm. Uh, At least in the way the code has been implemented. There always can be some surprises in production. But at the very least, I'm not inducing some surprises by using a code that is different in production than the one Mm -hmm. that was used in development. That is something that is... I'm extremely strict about, because I really don't want to have that complexity of porting code from development to production. And mm-hmm. that's why it's very important to think about production uh, starting your development. When you start your development, think about production. You know, mm-hmm. Are you going to, pro- to productionize your code in real time, or are you, are you going to productionize in batch? This will influence the way you write your code. And you should be able to write your code in development in a way that is in line with the way you're going to productionize.
1: Yeah, I think every data scientist or machine learning engineer is probably going through those type of shifts. Like I have similar experiences with you where I didn't know how to write a function. There's no module. I just run things line by line. In R, you can just... Do the, what is it, LM, the linear model. And Mm -hmm. then um, it's uh, basically you just want to understand those uh, coefficients. I think I didn't even need to do some prediction. It was more the very kind of statistical uh, method focusing on some causal relationships. And then I moved to Jupyter Notebook, similar to um, what you did. And then most of the time when I was Amazon, I think I was using uh, Jupyter Notebook because we have engineering teams that's supporting us. And now I moved to a startup, and then most of our work is to build machine learning tools for other data scientists, and engineers, and most people are developing in the um, you know, engineering environment. So I, first time, set up my VS code, um, trying to figure out how to use this engineering environment. I think that's something... New. I want to learn. I want to uh, adopt. I just sometimes feel it's uh, magical to see um, engineers do everything kind of in a command yeah. line. I thought it's like a people think machine learning is magic. Sometimes I see them run some bash bash command and, and solve some environment problem I'm facing. I feel like that's magic.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great learning experience, but yeah. you know, you know, like um, it's not because. I use so I right now I use VS Code uh, most of the time, but I still use uh, Jupyter Notebook every day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different use. I'm I'm just I'm using to test code. I'm using to maybe see the data. You know, yeah. Like like really to have a all the exploration data analysis. I would do it mm-hmm. in in a new notebook. I would even say that. Uh, At Meta, I know that at Netflix, they do the same. I'm pretty sure at Google, they do with their collab uh, uh, notebooks. We were heavily using notebooks to be able to look at things, uh, look at the data. Maybe you run an experiment, and you you can track the experiment in your notebook. But you're always calling some some functions that you wrote in production environment from your notebook, maybe to start them, to run them in a way that the way you run them in your notebook is not going to influence uh, uh, different behaviors depending on how you run them in in your notebook.
1: Yeah. So now you talked a lot about solving the problem, providing value to the customer. So do you see yourself as a machine learning engineer, data science, and how do you uh, see yourself? I think that
0: project I described earlier, like the one where know how to go beyond machine learning Mm -hmm. really helped me uh, transition to to a different type of engineer. So for many years after my PhD I described myself as a data scientist and I was very rigid about it. I'm a data scientist and there are many ways to define a data scientist. I always was saying so when I started my, my career being a data scientist meant doing machine learning. I mean, it was kind of implied. Uh, yeah. But it kind of changed over time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like more and more data people that had data analyst title moved to being a data scientist in terms of title. So, data scientist uh, became a different uh, meaning. But I was always saying, yeah, I'm the type of I'm a data scientist that solves machine learning problems. I was, you know, very strict about that.
1: Mm-hmm. You want
0: me to to do some analysis? No, I'm not doing that. I build machine learning models. <laughs> you know, that was, you know, I had people coming to me and I need some analysis. No, I don't do analysis. I, I build machine learning models. I was very rigid about that, and I never considered myself a, I, as an engineer. I I always felt, I mean, never. I always felt I didn't have the the level to call myself an engineer, like a, a software engineer. I was always regarding software engineers as being those people that could do things that could never do. What you were describing earlier with VS Code, like doing everything for the command lines, like, oh wow, those guys are magical. And you know, I was always like feeling that I I could write code, but mm-hmm. I was I was nowhere near being a software engineer. So. Something that I've worked hard to do during many years was to improve my engineering skills. Mm. It took me years to finally being confident enough to call myself an engineer.
1: You know, yeah. like,
0: uh, and I think that job at Century Sixty was really the position that uh, that startup. You know, really the position where I really did some really good engineering. And I was really solving problems that were beyond just machine learning. How do you deploy that Docker into uh, uh, ECS, uh, which mm-hmm. is like Elastic Container C- System, I forgot what that meant. It's like a AWS. Uh, oh, you, you you know that. What what is what does ECS stand for? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember.
1: It wasn't so much ECS Elastic something. <laughs> elastic
0: container. Of I forgot what that stands for, but it's basically the Kubernetes counterpart of AWS. Yeah. How you deploy in ECS. this kind of problems that you don't usually don't care about when you you you. Dev- Develop models, it's where I felt like, oh, I started to, to feel more comfortable calling myself an engineer. And now, um, now especially that I'm trying to build my company, um, I'm very strict in calling myself a tech guy. You know, like tech guy to not just call myself a software engineer, but the guy that will solve every tech problems for you, you Mm. know? Yeah. Um, I was strict about calling myself this way when I was looking for co-founders because when I was looking for co-founders, I was looking for non-tech people and I didn't want to be seen as a machine learning guy Mm. because it was very important for me to think about building a company that was not only about machine learning. What I wanted to do is find people Find problems that people have, when I say find people, find co-founders, and then find problems that people have. You know, maybe find a domain that I'm passionate about. And in that domain, find the problems that people may have and try to find solutions for that problem. And I, was, I wanted to be extremely careful to not be biased in trying to find machine learning solutions. I wanted to find the right solutions for the right problem. You know, that problem I had in that previous startup where we went with a machine learning solution and realized that machine learning was not the, the solution there. I didn't want to reproduce that mistake there. I don't know if I would see it as a mistake, more as a as an evolution of things, but I want to make sure that uh, I bring the right solutions. I consider that at this point, I could do anything that is uh, engineering-based meaning that I could do machine learning if it's required, but I could do front-end, back-end, data engineering, data analysis, mobile. I could do all of that. Whatever the business needs as a tech solution, I would bring it. It doesn't have to be, and I don't want to be rest- to restrict to a specific set of technologies or something like that. When I think about me as an entrepreneur in a startup, I want to make sure that every option is on the table and that if a specific technology needs to be used for implement a specific solution because it's what market research would have highlighted I would learn that technology and I would implement it and that's how I see myself as a as a tech guy the guy that is not limited by a specific programming language, a specific technology, a specific framework, a specific engineering paradigm, the guy that can provide any tech solution.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And um, uh, what is something in the machine learning community that most people believe in but you disagree with?
0: So you see, if I find myself in a situation where most people in the community disagree with me, I would... I would start to question if what I believe is is actually really true, right? Mm. (laughs) I don't think I am in a situation where I believe something that most people disagree with. But I am in a situation where I believe things that tend to be uh, disagreeing with what some groups of people may, may be thinking. And I think it's due to the different backgrounds that people may have. Like for example, like I said, you know, I've been very careful to to limit the type of applications, the type of data science applications I've been working on
2: mm-hmm. to be
0: machine learning based. And what I mean what I mean by machine learning, I mean machine learning that is underlying big data. This is my small word. And there are people that call themselves data scientists that just don't have that type of requirement, you know. So maybe they work on small data. Maybe they don't need to productionize. Maybe they just do, you know, uh, machine learning for uh, advising, you know, or
2: mm-hmm.
0: pe- other people, you know. Like for example, if you do quarterly projection of of uh, revenue, you know, you, you may use some machine learning or something, but. Could fall under the the categorization of machine learning, and they're going to do. Those people are doing very different things than what I what I want to be doing, or what I've been very strict about doing. They would have a different vision of what is useful in machine learning. I mean, I know that when I came out of my small world of machine learning, my small bubble of somebody that wanted to do machine learning with. Complex algorithms on big data. For example, I was uh, recently I started to 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 write a bit more on LinkedIn, right, and to express my opinions, and realize that my small word is is different from the word of other people. For example, I was saying personally, I, I use mostly, you know, especially in the first iteration of of a project, I would never use linear regression. I would use XGBoost. You know, mm-hmm. something like that. I would say something like that because it fits to my word. And I would have people that would be so upset about me being able to claim something that outrageous. It's understandable in the sense that, you know, their word is different from mine and also like it's different from what i am been trained on. You know, I, I think about those people that I think you fit in that category. Tell me if I'm wrong. But I'm thinking about people, for example, that have, um, you know, a, a, a rigid, strong academic education in statistics. I think you have a master in stats. Am I am I right?
1: Yeah, a master in
0: statistics. People coming out of a master in statistics are extreme experts in everything that that relates to linear regression, let's say.
1: Yeah, we spent two semesters, three semesters, just learn different type of linear regression.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a, this strong bias uh, from somebody that comes from a, a statistics education, first of all, to know so much about a specific algorithm and uh, feeling that there's so much that can be extracted from it. Me, uh, having a physics background, when machine learning was exposed to me, uh, linear regression was exposed to me at the same time than boosting algorithms, mm. you know, and and so you know, like I could just look at those two set of algorithms and and think, okay, which one do I want to use when 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 I want to solve a complex problem? And uh, I would have the bias to go with a, a model that bring me a better value quickly, at least in the way I tend to. Uh, assess value, and for me, uh, I get much more value uh, quickly from a random forest algorithm than a linear uh, regression algorithm, and uh, that's because this is the way I was, you know, exposed to those, to those to those algorithms. I don't have that bias in thinking that there's so much that can come from uh, linear regression. Now there's so many people that told me, uh, "Yeah, but XGBoost, uh, you you cannot do statistical inference because you cannot deduce the confidence interval and this this like that, you know this these kind of yeah. things from, mm-hmm. from 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 a theoretical standpoint." And there's all those things, where people are very attached to a specific algorithm, and and I was basically bashing it. I realized that people have just you know, they just live in different words when it comes to data science, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Every word is is uh, is to be respected. I just describe, you know, my own word. I don't think I disagree with most people on that. You know, many people yeah. would, would have a similar feeling than me when it comes to using XGBoost versus uh, linear regression on big data and complex mm-hmm. data. Um, it's just that somewhat a cleavage there.
1: Yeah. So previously, during your career, you were um, laid off before and now I know a lot of people are also um, going through these experiences because of the economy. So can you share what was it like and what were some lessons you learned?
0: I think it was very important for me, that type of experience. I got laid off in my second job. At the time, so I was working at EMC. Which, was, uh, which is a company that sells uh, s- servers. Uh, it's a leading company in that, that field. It was bought by Dell at the time. It was merged with Dell and acquired by Dell. And so they were going through that uh, typical process where they get rid of the redundant people or the useless people. At the time, I, was, I had a very big ego when it comes to being a data scientist. I was in that job that everybody was telling me that was a job of the 21st century. I, I thought I was golden. I thought that I was super useful, you know. It's funny how immature I was at the time thinking mm-hmm. that I was useful. It's, it was not my first layoff. I've been off a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me realize that data science, machine learning, uh, is a very unsafe job because machine learning in most cases is not core is not core to uh the revenue generation mm. in most companies so if you at meta machine learning is core to uh the revenue it's ads yeah May- maybe mm. maybe it's the same for google maybe if you are amazon if you work on rank engines when you when you Actually, on the website, and you search for things, you would contribute maybe double-digit piece of uh, to the revenue uh, in terms of percentage. But uh, in most places, you you're just optimizing on things that are already working, and so you 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 you're not bringing a big piece to the of the revenue to the company. Hmm. And so in most cases, not that useful. You're not as useful as a front-end, front-end engineer that is actually the guy that is going to be able to move a button around. Yeah. That guy is much more useful than you if you're doing marketing campaigns uh, yeah. simply because you need that guy that can move that button around. Right. If you're in a financial trouble, you can get around for a little while without somebody that is going to super super optimize your marketing campaigns.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that's the reality of things that um, I think for data scientists or machine learning people, it's important to understand how you fit uh, when it comes to the cash flow of the business you're going to work for. It's important to be on the front li- line of um, the, the cash flow. You need to be yeah. able to contribute to that big piece if you want to keep your job when there are some financial troubles. Mm. I was surprised to realize that even in Uber, they fired, you know, I think 3,000 people. A big piece of, of those people, big part of those people were machine learning people.
1: Yeah.
0: I think in Zillow, they fired 2,000 people. A big part of those were machine learning people because mm. uh, the bottom line is that when you use Zillow, it's just a website and machine learning is, may not be that, Incredibly useful to bring the most, the, the big piece of, the, the, of the, the value that the users mm. get, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: So it's important to understand that uh, machine learning uh, jobs are, can be risky. If you go to yeah. a startup, if the core business of the startup is not around machine learning, mm-hmm. you're at risk. Especially in a startup, they, they may need like one or two models, or maybe zero as soon as you train that one or two mothers, you know, they, are, they don't care about making sure that you maintain those mothers. You know, they get rid of you as soon as you as you train those mothers because they get the mothers and now what what are you here for? Here for. Mm-hmm. So in a startup, if you're if the business is not related to what machine learning can provide as as, as value, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's better to not go work there. Uh, in a bigger business when they can allow for a bit less optimization around resources, you know, if you have 10,000 people in a company mm-hmm. and you have a small team of data scientists that is barely generating any value, uh, maybe we can keep them around for the next five years. Okay.
1: Yeah. Or some companies like Google, they have the research department. Yeah. I tell to someone, there. they're like, we are... Purposely not taking too much uh, feedback from the short term goals because they yeah. want to think long term. So um, they are research scientists. Maybe their goals like ten years, uh, twenty years, and as long as Google is floating, yeah, um, they don't need to worry about their jobs. Yeah.
0: Again, you know, like this only exists. You know, a company like Google can only do that mm-hmm. if Google is a comfortable financially. I mean, financially, it's yeah. a comfortable company. Can only do that as soon as 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 uh, it's not comfortable financially. The research piece is is not what is going to matter. Yeah, uh, it's going to be the, the those are the first people that are going to be in trouble hmm. uh, when it comes to jobs.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So previously you mentioned you um you were not very satisfied in your previous company, so then you started to look for jobs and joined meta. So what was the frustration in your previous company?
0: I think it's something that that happens to many data scientists. And I, I see I know it's it's somewhat happening to the people still working there. Many data scientists they they, they learn about machine learning and they want to do machine learning. And then uh they are Upset when we do Tableau stuff or SQL stuff,
1: yeah. you know,
0: because it's not as exciting. I mean, it can be fun, you know. Don't get me wrong. But it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just different job, you know, like doing machine learning and and doing data analysis. And and nowadays, you no know, data scientist is somebody that can do both and that is somewhat expected to do quite a bit of data analysis. The reality in many companies is that they hire people. But have a passion for machine learning to make them do some data analysis, mm. and they get frustrated because it's not what they yeah. want to do. So in Sensei 16, I was hired to. I was the first hired uh, in that company that has a clear machine learning title. So there were like many data scientists, but uh, they were the type of data scientists that were building. So, making a lot of analyses
2: mm-hmm. and
0: building a lot of SQL pipelines, but not doing quite really machine learning. So, I was really the first person that was hired to uh, conceptualize the fact that we were going to do machine learning. Mm-hmm. And a few people from the data science team moved under me to do data, uh, I mean, machine learning,
2: mm-hmm.
0: like purely machine learning, not data analysis. So, we um, it's a data product company, meaning that there's data, and it should be a lot of opportunities to do some machine learning because there's data. It's a, it's a minimum constraint. But uh, what happened is over time, we moved away from uh, having any machine learning uh, plans. Basically, machine learning, as often it is, you know, in companies is not as valuable than just just doing some let's say data engineering you know
2: mm.
0: if you do some nice data engineering and some good data analysis uh very often you know companies will find more values in that than just as having some models predicting some stuff that you may not care about and yeah. that was that was what happened but there was nothing to that the company cared about to predict you know now that's mm-hmm. what machine learning is about. So, I I could have stayed there and and a team of that were mostly doing very strong data analysis,
2: mm-hmm.
0: building very good SQL pipelines. But that was not me. I was a I was that that person that wanted to see himself more as a, as an engineer, and I didn't yeah. want to be I didn't want to be seen as a as a good data analyst because first, not sure I was. I'm not as good as those guys when it comes to data analysis, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a different job, you know, yeah. and I wanted to continue my, my journey in machine learning or engineering. And, uh, so I knew I could not stay there. That's, that, yeah. that's basically what happened. I was a victim of the job title of data science shifting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember like after that job I was applying I, they gave me a title of head of data science uh and I was applying to to jobs where i was wanted to be a manager in machine learning and because of the title, people were quickly dismissing my application because i i was not seen as being the guy that could manage a team of engineers doing machine learning projects I was seen as the guy that was was I could manage data analysts or whatever skills go into that that concept, uh, and I didn't want that. I, uh, Meta was actually the only company that uh, accept you know that seen me as a potential person to manage engineers in machine learning. I had a tough time actually because of the job title. Mm-hmm. I had a tough time convincing people that I was a machine learning guy. I was not a guy that was doing data analysis. I was an engineer and people had a hard time understanding that because of the titles I I had of of in my career.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think for it really depends on what people want. I think for some people they really want to have a job, get into data science. I think it's important to have that expectation um sometimes doing analytics b i or some data science work you really still build the models like uh linear regression tree based um mm-hmm. launch a simple model that's probably more useful than have the expectation, oh, I'm going to build this complex machine learning yeah. Um, yeah. system. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong about it. But if you know what you want, okay, I, I this is exactly what I want to do. I'm going to build a machine learning system. Then you need to be carefully choosing your company, your role, like you yeah. mentioned. This company needs to already first have data for you to train, yeah. have certain infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and also, what does the leadership think? Do they have the buy-in to support this Exactly. Project. If you go into early stage startup, do they have um, funding? Um, does your man- manager understands machine learning? I think those are yeah. all the elements you need to um, yeah consider.
0: You need to make sure that there's a real business need for mm-hmm. machine learning, and it's something that it took me a while to uh, to understand when when I was applying to to jobs. Um, there are very few companies that are able to do good machine learning and make money out of it right. uh, in most cases the, the machine learning that is the most useful is actually maybe linear regression you know for forecasting or or some some
2: mm-hmm.
0: advising you know on on some 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 specific planning you know and that is where the, the maybe the the most value may be uh, in most companies
2: mm-hmm. uh, but
0: if you want to do some good deep learning stuff. There are very few companies where you can actually do that for a long time before being laid off
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and if you don't really care that much about like uh deep learning machine learning system and you're more interested in solving business problems, learning all the different tools whether it's analytics and data engineering mm-hmm. um, i think that data science is also a great place for you to be in as long as you're open to learning you are flexible you're not yeah. so tied up in in a job title i think just focusing on providing value to the business and uh you can still be a great data scientist and you don't always have to yeah
0: definitely. um yeah. Th- th- this is you know like mm-hmm. i always see like as a misunderstanding for example that data scientist is like a promotion from a data analyst uh in terms of job
2: mm-hmm.
0: there are many people like i was saying that 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 goes into their science science, wanting only to do machine learning. But there's a lot of value you can provide without machine learning. Actually, there's much more value you can provide without machine learning. But BI, in general, is like in in average, like if you look across companies, it's much more valuable to understand the states of your data, the states of things by looking at some graph and having Mm -hmm. some machine learning in place.
2: Yeah. So
0: if you you don't attach yourself too much to machine learning, if you understand, you know, uh, actually business problems, you know, there's a lot of ways you can try to solve those problems without machine learning.
1: Right. And also it's not as easy as it seems to build a dashboard. You can put, you know, 10 plots there, but what is the story behind it? Are you able to ask the right question to form the right hypothesis to test that? Are you solving the right problem? Those are all, um, yeah, kind of a, a combination of your business goals and the technical skills. So I think um, when we get into our career Try to experiment different type of roles and see what you like, what you don't like. It doesn't. You don't actually have to follow what is popular. Uh, where is the buzzword is at today?
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So now, what are you currently working on?
0: Right now, so it's very very early stage, but it's kind of exciting for me. Uh, so I, I, I quit Meta months ago. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a month ago, ago today, and um, I'm working on trying to build my own startup. Yeah, that's a that's a big step for me. Um, I actually started to to try to do that w- when I was in Meta.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So two months in in Meta, Meta, I realized like, oh, there's no way I stay here for more than a year, and also I had like a, a signing bonus that I put right away into my mortgage. I could not reimburse, so I could not leave right, yeah. right away. A few months after I started in Meta, I started to think about, okay, let's say if I want to build a startup, how do I do that thing? You know. So I thought thought about, I there's something I didn't want to do, and I see a lot of people doing, it, 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 it is to think about what you're an expert in and how you could apply your expertise to things. And I see a lot of people doing that. I'm an expert in machine learning. How am I going to build a business around machine learning and to provide value about machine, with machine learning? I mean, I, I'm sure it can work for some people. When I see, for example, those companies with .ai, you know, we do machine learning .ai company. It's usually some experts in machine learning that try to find a way to be useful in the mm-hmm. on the markets. And I think it can work for many companies, for many people, but because machine learning is not that widespread in our societies, you know, like, I mean, you see it in Meta, you see it in Google, but most companies, you know, they don't care about co- machine learning. Therefore, you know, building a whole business around machine learning is not that easy. You know, there's yeah. not that much demand around machine learning. So so, so few companies can be successful, but not, not many. So, what I wanted to make sure is that I wanted to find a space that I'm passionate about, you know especially in the in that situation where I was where I didn't like where I was working, mm-hmm. and I was trying to make sure that uh I was going to find myself a better spot. I wanted to understand what am I passionate about, and a few things I'm passionate about I love food <laughs> food is 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 clearly. One of my top passion, you know, I could spend all my money going to restaurants. I love cooking, this kind of thing. But also, I always loved uh, education. Yeah. So I I have like three masters, you know, I have a PhD. I, I love to teach. I taught for seven years. And I love to mentor people, you know, helping them understand how to get better jobs or, or how to get on the job market, these kind of things. So I thought about like that space. I like it. So I started to build a, a tutoring platform. So I wanted to feel something related uh, to knowledge, like how to convey knowledge to other people. I wanted also to make sure I could monetize it. So I tried to build that tutoring platform. I didn't do any market research. I do not care about it. I I, I really wanted to I had a job, right? And I wanted yeah. to I wanted to build something. I didn't want to philosophize too much around what I had to build. I just wanted to build it. I knew it was the wrong way to go about building a business, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to do that. So I built that that tutoring platform. It took me a long time because, well, I didn't know how to do front-end. Uh, I was not especially a back-end expert, you know, So, but, you know, I did it. And then tried to, to show it to people, and realize that nobody cared about it. Nobody cared about that platform, because <laughs> well, the competition was actually much better. <laughs> and I did not realize that there was a competition because, well, I, I wanted to be blind of it, to it. Yeah? So that's the time where you know I felt like, okay, now I can build something that looks like a company. I was just not good enough when it comes to business to to make it a reality, to make it such that people want it. You know, mm. there's much more than tech when you build a company. You know, when you build a software product. There's much more than tech behind it. There's like, do people want it? So I got a big slap from the market at the time that was very uh, got me to wake up in a sense. I tried to look for co-founders. So, I wanted to find non tech people to help me. At, at first, I wanted to, them to help me maybe guide the product to something that was a better market fit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but then I realized that what I wanted to find, who what I, what I wanted to find, was people I could work with for many years. Um, yeah. And did not really matter as much the space or what we were building. What I wanted to find, Who I wanted to find was people I could be married to. The time we would need to build a company. Yeah. And I realized that it's actually a very important piece. Uh, if you don't like your co-founders, you're not going to. Well, you're going to quit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I found uh, I, I registered in just uh, uh, what is called the um, startup. Um, what is called the startup school by yc by y combinator okay uh, they have a cofounder matching tool i really mm-hmm. recommend it where you get a lot of high quality people to build uh you know that have a very strong experience that's to me the and it's free there are a few tools like that like Cofounder lab or some other verse i tried that they, you need to pay in some ways yc is a startup school by yc is, a, is actually free is much higher quality than what you can find uh, on the market. So,
2: yeah.
0: And I found my first co-founder Dan. Actually, I talked to many potential co-founders there in the space. I wanted to 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 say to to, to find people that were passionate in the by the space of ed tech, education mm-hmm. tech. And I found uh, Dan, uh, that is now my co-founder, that was working on a consumer app. To uh, help people learn complex pro- topics, you know, or controversial topics.
2: Mm-hmm. Like for
0: example, you will find a lot of tools around uh, uh, out there to learn about machine learning, right? It's not controversial. It's very, you know, you learn about something that is going to be knowledge, piece of knowledge you can utilize as something that is actionable. But uh, if you think about topics like, abortion. There's a lot of things to understand about abortion to have an opinion there. You can lean left or right on, on that specific subject, but many people tend to uh, make a decision on that subject based on values and not too much about actual knowledge that relates to that subject. How do you lean on a a topic that is controversial, and how do you educate yourself to lean in an educated manner? And in a sense, is how do you also understand the other side? Mm -hmm. How do you understand both sides or all the sides in such a way that instead of disagreeing with people based on what you feel is right, you disagree with people understanding where they come from you disagree with people, understanding maybe the different point of view they may have based on different experience or something like that. So I really like the fact that what he was working on was a way to bring people together. Mm. Um, and it was not about the tool, but it was about the person. I, I wanted to work with somebody that has that type of moral the type of trying to 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 make the society better you know the reality was that uh, we we could not find a way to uh, monetize a consumer app, uh, app and so we actually moved to the idea that we were going to build a b2b uh, company so we realized that um we would have difficulty to monetize a consumer app uh, so we went uh, into the direction to have a B2B more, uh, I mean, type company, and we are thinking about this, you know, SaaS solution, a um, so SaaS B2B company. Uh, and uh, what we're working on right now is actually a lot influenced by what I experienced at Meta. Uh, at least I. I'm able to project myself very easily into the shoes of the users because of what I experience at Meta. So um Meta is a company that actually cares a lot about their employees. They are going to listen to them, try to, you know, send them surveys and make sure that they understand what they feel. You know, Mark Zuckerberg every week is answering questions uh, uh from employees is having a one hour meeting every week uh to to talk to us uh, there is a real desire to to make a good culture but even then you know all that desire i felt that i had a lots of opinions that i could not that were not heard you know
1: mm-hmm. i
0: felt that it was difficult to convey some opinions or some things that could really help the business. At least it's what I felt as an employee. I may have been wrong because, you know, if you're a leader, you know, there are things that you know that employees don't. But at the very least, you know, I felt that I, I was not heard in mm. a company that has a culture around listening to people that was that was a uh, that was um interesting for me because I felt that there was something to do there how uh is it possible that you work in a company that wants to listen to you but you cannot be heard or well, at least it's what you feel and I wanted to to build a company uh, i mean at least you know what we are the direction we are going uh with is uh providing a tool for employees to be to uh, get heard better, to have a better voice in a in a in a, in a company, as well as providing uh, leaders a way to uh, make better decisions by uh, being able to uh, get more refined information when uh they survey their employees, so when you survey employees you know you're you're limited by the the rigidity of what a survey is and how shallow can be the results you get from a survey you know it's very uh non human you know it's it's very numbers and there is something missing about some some refinement about some problems that may exist in the company uh, that you have difficulty to capture with surveys. So that's what we're going after, trying to provide a better voice to employees uh, and to give leaders a tool to understand a bit better how their employees are, are feeling to potentially communicate decisions in a more educated manner, or to maybe adapt their decisions to uh, things that they've learned from the surveys, I mean, from uh, uh, talking to their employees.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm very excited to um, see the tool when you uh, launch it. So what do you think about the future of machine learning?
0: So first of all, this is a short-term revolution that I think we're going to see. Um, I mean, I'm just going to extrapolate the trend I, I see, okay, and and try to utilize what I see in other fields to to make that extrapolation. So, since you know, like there there are two things that happen, I think at the beginning of two thousand you know, at the end of two thousands, beginning of two thousand tens um which is that we 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 get bigger machines and we get different type of algorithms so um i think data scientists uh became very fashionable at the beginning of the twenty you know twenty tens because suddenly they were able to train on more data uh, in bigger machines, and uh, you know, there was there, there was this type of revolution that started to happen at the beginning of two thousand ten. That's when data scientists became the job of the twenty first century, uh,
2: mm.
0: where you know, like big data was a was a, a, a reality uh, more than it used to be, and um, additionally to that. What happened, you know, with with uh, deep learning, with Jeffrey Hinton in two thousand six and two thousand seven, being able to train bigger n- networks, maybe um, two thousand thirteen with with AlexNet, uh, may- maybe two thousand what eighteen with Bert, uh, we start to see new um, Revolutions I mean new ways to new capabilities that we didn't have before with the ability to to generate inference on 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 images on text in a way that uh, is is close to what humans can do now and uh, that type of, of revolution led to is leading to to new type of businesses new type of markets. You know, if you think about the autonomous car, the autonomous car does not exist without um, uh, deep learning. It does not exist without, most likely, reinforcement learning. Uh, I mean, deep reinforcement learning. Um, so, you know, like the 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 type of things we are able to able to build now with those algorithmic revolutions. And the type of jobs we see now with the uh, um, infrastructure revolution that happened, you know, with bigger machines and bigger data is, is leading, you know, is leading to new market. Machine learning is, is becoming more and more part of our societies. AI is becoming something that is useful. It's you know it's it's still it's still limited, you know, I still find it limited, but the trend is that more and more company companies are able to extract value from machine learning. And more and more users are able to interact with machine learning product and um see value in it. You know, if you if you use Netflix, you will you will you, you will get better recommendations than on Amazon Prime. Because they have better algorithms uh machine learning algorithms to recommend uh movies on on the platform and and uh, the trend that we see is that I think we're going to see more and more products that we didn't think uh could exist uh that utilize machine learning and if we see really an expansion in machine learning uh uh endeavors you know practices. That means that we're going to um, uh, have more and more tools that get created to um, help with the complexity of machine learning. I think we see a lot of companies now that exist that help with the MLOps, that helps to deploy mon- models, that help, helps to, to uh, monitor models. Uh, that piece becomes easier. We we have uh, companies that are working on AutoML, like Data Robot. So the piece of development becomes easier. What, what it means is that um, there's this level of abstraction that is built on top of the complexity we knew about machine learning to make things easier. So we used to need PhDs in stats to run machine learning models, to develop machine learning models. We start to need less deep expertise to do something similar faster. Um, doesn't mean we don't need expertise, but you don't need to know to have a PhD in stat or mathematics to now understand uh, how to uh, run a machine learning experiment in a proper manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and more and more, I think what we're going to see is that there's abstraction of complexity, meaning that less uh, less uh, people with an expertise that is less maybe mathematical uh, will be able to uh, handle machine learning. Uh, I think we'll have a, a more uh, specializations. So where in the 90s, you used to have programmers. Now you have front-end engineers, back-end engineers, data engineers. I think we're going to see the same thing with machine learning. More specializations around the different type of machine learning. First of all, NLP machine learning is a different beast than, uh, you know, uh, computer vision machine learning. And I think we already see that type of specialization. Mm. Um, you will have, I think, people that are that can uh, just action some. Some framework, like you know, just use a fit function without really understanding what what's underneath, and you will have people that uh, will uh, be still trying to develop, you know, what's under the, the hood, uh, and you have more and more that that cleavage. I think that will exist. You more and more you have you will have uh, different type of engineers around machine learning. I think. MLOps, MLOps engineer is, is a new type of job, I, I believe. Uh, you know, some some people that really specialize around monitoring or, or deploying models, or the, maybe the data engineering around machine learning. You know, I think that's going to be specialized. Uh, you will have people that are specializing in data engineering for machine learning. I think at least is the trend that I, I would see if I look at other engineering fields. We'd have more and more specializations and more and more abstractions of the complexity. What I was what I was, what I was saying earlier is that um, back in the fifties, uh, people that could write programs, simple programs, had PhDs. You know, like if you think about people at NASA, you know, writing you know writing punch cards to to write code that and and you know. People that invented Fortran, for example, you know, um, those were very in-depth, you know, very expert expert people in in the language aspect of what programmation was about. But then, then um, more and more, you know, that complexity got abstracted away, and you could do more and more m- more and more complex things with with because of that abstraction, uh, so you didn't need anymore to know um, to know uh, forgot that that the computer language. What is the computer I mean the core computer language. Um, anyway, you didn't know you didn't need anymore to, to 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 know how to build a compiler. You just use a compiler and that complexity is abstracted away. Now you you can you can deploy you know websites across the world at click of a button if you use like a, a tool like Elastic Elastic Beanstalk or like earlier things like Heroku you know like. That complexity is just abstracted away, and you can just focus on building more complex things mm-hmm. because you, you you're dealing with simpler simpler you know elements you know single sim, simpler Lego blocks you yeah know? so um, by abstracting the complexity away we're going to I think being able to build compl- more complex uh, things with machine learning more and more mm-hmm. so I'm just. I'm just seeing that trend being there. And it's a trend that you've seen in in every software domains, Um, abstraction of complexity, and therefore, simple blocks to use to build bigger things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So more specialization and uh, more tools uh, to enable Uh, data scientists and machine learning engineers. Yeah.
0: I think so. I think that's a trend.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So now you become an uh, entrepreneur. You started this business. Um, What are something you're excited about in your uh, life or career? So I'm excited about retiring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My dream is to retire and go around the world with my wife. You know, like Spend five years uh going from one country to another, going to expensive restaurants, that's that's kind of what I want to do. You know, like if I think about what is it I want to do, that's that's that. Yeah. Um if I think about uh why I want to build a startup, there is behind it so I mean I'm excited about building, you know, it's it's fun, but there's, there's behind it a desire to have one big success and to retire, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know the journey is important, and not, it's not, not not only the goal. So uh, I'm excited about the journey as well. All that growth and learning that I will have to go through to potentially, I mean, hopefully, uh, with low probability uh, to succeed. I'm excited about that learning, that growth that I, I will have to go through. Um, I can tell that I know very little. You know, by you know, when I when I do what I do right now, I can tell that there are um, many things that I don't know and and um, I need to learn to be able to to get something going. So that's that's kind of exciting. So. Mm-hmm. I I love I love learning and I love the idea that I do something I don't know how to do, so I love the idea that here I'm in front of the in front of something I really don't know how to do, and I will have to figure out how to do it.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that, and that's very um, exciting. So we met because I think I saw your uh, LinkedIn post sharing your. Career journey and uh, uh best practices around machine learning. So for folks who want to um read more content from you, where can they find you?
0: So yeah, you found me, you found me on LinkedIn. I mean, we you know, the thing with LinkedIn right now is that um I'm taking a break.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's true that I wrote some content, uh, what for two months on LinkedIn, less than two months, I believe. I was very excited about that, uh, you know, that that process. Mm-hmm. But now I, I'm not, I'm not writing anymore on LinkedIn, uh, simply because it takes too much time, uh, and all that time I prefer to spend it, you know, writing code, or or spending time with my family. So. Yeah. Uh, maybe i come back a bit later on LinkedIn, and it will be much more about my journey in, in the startup world than mm-hmm. machine learning itself. But um, that makes more sense for me at this point. So people can go on LinkedIn and look at my previous posts, but right now it's in a stale state.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and and that would be it until I, I, I find a reason to come back to it.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. We all go through different uh, um, stages. I think after a while, you'll probably have different learnings, different opinions um, to share with the audience. Maybe we'll have uh, round two of this conversation.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, hopefully, you have a, you know, if it's round two, that means I have things to say. If I have things <laughs> to say, that means that uh, the journey I'm, I'm on right now is, is somewhat fruitful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which,
0: which is not a given
1: <laughs> yeah, um I think we broke the record for the data scientist show um, conversation Time. again. <laughs> yeah, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I think the audience will probably also find it very um, useful, and thanks again for sharing your journey and your experiences.
0: with pleasure that was uh, that was really fun.